0: There's the everything is trying to kill you planet, which, uh, you know, isn't really a biome so much as just like, you know, they're constantly running into hostile life. Mm -hmm. There's a garbage planet where, you know, probably some corporation or whatever is just dumping all their garbage. My favorite things I discovered that I laughed at was uh, the Vancouver planet or the Southern California planet um, because it's cheap to film there.
1: Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. Author Neil Holchelty joins me on a tour of the universe as we hunt for single-biome planets. These are staple locations in science fiction, most notably used in Star Wars, where a single ecosystem wraps an entire planet. How realistic are single-biome planets? And do we have some right here in our solar system? Neil, I want to tell you a joke first. Oh, good. Okay, here's my joke. (laughs) This is a long joke, but it's fitting. Here we go. Ready? (laughs) This is from a regular webcomics. Imperial officer tells Lord Vader, the rebels have fled the ice planet of Hoth. After going to the swamp planet of Dagobah, Skywalker has rejoined his friends on the desert world of Tatooine, and now the rebel fleet is massing for an attack on the forest moon of Endor. And Darth Vader says, I sense a great disturbance in the force. And the Imperial officer goes, my lord. And Darth Vader says, how else can so many worlds be totally covered with only one terrain type without regard to latitudinal variations? (laughs) (laughs) I found that joke. I thought it was very fitting. What did you think?
0: It's good. It's very astute of Lord Vader.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So Neil, you are returning to the podcast. I am so excited to have you back on. Thank you so much for being on here. Can you please, for those who did not listen to your other episode, introduce yourself and tell us about your latest projects?
0: Yes, thank you. Um, I'm glad to be here. So uh, my my first novel, uh, a science fiction novel called Crew of Exiles, released in October 2022, so not too long ago. Uh, and it's a sci-fi adventure about a transcendent being who is banished to a human body on earth and has to cope with that and perhaps rediscover his humanity along the way, um, and I'm very excited. Uh, you know, during the time that I was getting that novel out, I was, of course, writing my next one, and I'm, I'm working up the courage and the research to start querying it out, and it's uh it's sort of a very personal family drama, but also science fiction, because that's what I like to do mm-hmm. um, about uh, a man sort of struggling with uh, getting his life put together and uh, being the father he needs to be. So I'm very excited about that as well.
1: That's exciting. Um, I'm always impressed by writers who finish one idea And move right into another idea like i really admire that that drive and and motivation so good for you i'm excited about that project well thank you
0: yeah i find it hard not to want to jump right into that next idea so that's i don't know that's how i feel about it
1: i'm currently at a, a place where i have two ideas i have a duology in my head i have um an idea kind of sitting in in the in the wings And this is the first time I felt this confident about ideas in a while. Um, When I got my first big book uh, agented, I couldn't get my brain out of it for some Mm. reason. And any other idea just was too related. And I couldn't remove myself from the characters in that other book. But now I think I have it figured out. So I always think, I always admire authors that are able to just move from project to project and, like, I'm, I'm assuming detach themselves from the characters of the previous book and go into a whole new world with their new book unless of course it's a sequel
0: right yes uh i'm i'm a standalone man for now
1: Mm -hmm. seems less stressful i think i'm I'm actually impressed i'm even trying a duology right now i'm like oh boy i'm promising two things but uh i hear you on the on the single book idea okay i am doing a new thing this season where everyone gets rapid fire warm-ups you ready for yours
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Go ahead.
1: Okay. The first ones are easy. And I apologize if I've done this with you before. Um, I try to be have variety to it, but every now and then the same question kind of gets brought up, but are you a coffee or tea person?
0: Uh, more of a tea person, but I think mostly just my wife turned me onto that. I am not really a caffeine person and coffee. I don't like the taste. Gotcha.
1: Which tea do you like?
0: Oh, what is it? It's like a, it's like a cinnamon orange. Mm. that sort of vibe is what I like in my tea
1: hot or cold hot okay I'm gonna have to look that up do do you know what brand that you drink
0: oh shoot no not off the top of my head
1: okay that's fine I'll I'll look for it I've been trying to find a tea that isn't so caffeine heavy because I'm super sensitive to it okay Mm. which is worse getting your wisdom teeth extracted or handing your first draft over to a stranger to read
0: wisdom teeth no no question (laughs) um I had a horrible experience getting my wisdom teeth out and then, you know, they take them out. Cause like your molars, like aren't coming in properly or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the molars still didn't come in properly. And I had to have another surgery to take out two of my back molars. Oh, so I'm no. missing some molars and had to get double the surgery and it was miserable.
1: That sucks. That sucks. I feel like wisdom teeth, I've had my wisdom teeth out too. And I feel like they prescribe me cotton. Or oxycodone. I never. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And I feel like that was like the. It's like one of those gateway opportunities where you could accidentally get you know hooked on that, the like opium, you know, crisis yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. I hated it by the way. Like it made me feel so awful. But mm-hmm. you know, you have to be careful of what was it called? Dry rot or no? Dry root?
0: No, I think what? I think that. Well, that sounds right. That dry rot. The dry socket, maybe. Dry Something socket. Like
1: <laughs> yes. And I, yeah, I, oh, it was the worst thing I'd ever gone through, and yeah, I agree. I would hand over my first draft before going into wisdom two. Three I'm draft. excited to hand
0: over the first draft. I, I, you know, I there's some nerves, but I'm also excited. Usually, yeah.
1: Okay, all right. These next questions are related to the topic. Of the following locations, where would you want your forever home? Would you want it to be in the mountains, the beach, the desert, or the forest?
0: Uh, beach, although forest is a very, very close second. Um, Ooh,
1: okay. I really,
0: you know, and I've never like lived that close to a beach, but, um, I love the ocean and the beach. Yeah.
1: Okay. Do you like a lot of people in your forever home, like around you or
0: no, oh, no, okay. I'm like, I'm like on a beach on like a des- deserted Island. Like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. That, perfect for writing lots of stories, right? You get yes, that yes. time. Okay. And then of the star Wars planets, where would you want to live and why?
0: Mm, so i was anticipating that you might ask a question about the star wars universe so i had a little bit of pre-prepared thought on that but that was not the question i was expecting so which planet would i want to live on and why um mm, that's tough because you know as we'll probably get into the star wars planets are sort of the canonical things people point to when they talk about single biome well it's just like the one thing right mm-hmm. hoth is too cold absolutely not dagobah i can't i can't it's just too wet and swampy um i think endor is probably the most pleasant one i think you know tatooine is, is a bit harsh even though i do live in the desert i live mm-hmm. in new mexico currently and i love it but i think i think you got to go with endor um of the of the planets that i'm familiar with in the Star Wars. Not Coruscant, you know, not the big city, no way. Got to go with Endor on that one.
1: Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for going through the the very rough process of rapid-fire warm-up. Um are you ready to move on to the topic itself?
0: Yeah, let's do it.
1: Okay so when i the, the topic of single planets, i think was actually your idea when i was soliciting the listeners for you know topics that they're interested in and i added it to my list and then i send the list out to all of our you know participant or, or people who are prospective guests and they choose from that list or they bring something new to the table and i was amazed at the number of people that wanted to talk about single biome planets. And so when you said you wanted to do it I was like I feel like it, we have to talk because you were the one that put that topic on the list in the first place and I was like I'm curious to know what you have to say about it. So, um clearly this seems to be very interesting to a lot of people. This was actually new to me because I didn't understand what that meant at first and then I was like oh when I saw it in the Star Wars context I'm like okay okay I got it. But can you tell me what interested you in the topic and um what is it in the first place
0: yeah so first of all thank you for having the faith in me to encourage me to uh be the one to talk about it because nothing made me more nervous than hearing that lots of other people wanted to talk about it because i was immediately (laughs) imposter syndrome
1: oh no of of,
0: oh well if they want to talk about it they must know more about it than i do (laughs) um but uh, you know, I, I toyed around with the topic in my head and you know, talked about it a lot with my wife and, and did a little bit of research myself to, to bone up on the topic. And uh, I got more and more excited as, as the time uh, of this recording approached. And so um, then your second question of what exactly does it mean? I, I found that it's actually misused rather a lot. So, if I'm being super technical, biome really has to do with life. It's got bio right there in the word, and a lot of times I think people are simply using the word as maybe climate, or even just using the word as stereotype, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the the desert planet. Okay, well that's the stereotype of the planet, or you know, the ice planet. Right, that's the stereotype of the planet. So. You know, biome itself, and I am going to quote you here because I did look this up. Uh, I think it's just from Wikipedia or whatever. A large naturally occurring community of flora and fauna occupying a major habitat, for example, forest or tundra. And then I would add, so like Mars, for example, doesn't count because there's no life on Mars. Right. Oh, I wanted to um, know
1: about Mars. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I saw
0: your your questions prepared beforehand and I'm happy to talk more about that. And I think that I think that in some respects because the way the word actually gets used or the way the phrase single biome gets used is as stereotype stereotype planet, you know, perhaps. I think in some respects we kind of need to speak to it as that meaning. But I would say that the technical meaning is the plants and animals that occupy this category of landscape, you know, like I said, forest, tundra, desert, and there are subcategories of that, you know, I, so I live in Albuquerque, high desert, as opposed to, you know, like death Valley, which is below sea level, low desert. Um, and, you know, coastal as opposed to, uh, uh, well, I guess like the maybe I was trying to subdivide coastal and then I couldn't think of a, another subdivision. But you get the idea. You know, there's different types of forests. There's rainforests, there's deciduous and so on.
1: Would it be like coastal cliffs, like really high up cliffs versus coastlines that go into and like a beach?
0: Yeah, I'm no biologist, but that certainly seems like different subbiomes of coastal, like the high cliff versus what you said, sort of the the um, sandy grassland in the beach. Yeah.
1: Okay. So if we look at earth, then we see that earth is comprised of a ton of different eco ecobiomes. biomes. Am I, am I saying that right? Oh, I'm, I'm well, you know, I didn't,
0: I didn't look up the technical definition of ecosystem or ecobiome. So I'm not hundred percent sure on that, but um, I, I would absolutely agree. And I think most people would agree with your statement of like, yeah, earth has so many different biomes and ecosystems.
1: So for the sake of this podcast, when we're talking about single biome planets and and fiction, is -hmm. it explored in in like the stereotypical way of like, we're just assuming it's all one type of thing across this planet?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that's what the word, the phrase means.
1: Okay. So then let's look at our, let's look at real life before Mm -hmm. we jump into fiction. It would Venus be a single biome planet.
0: Um, So when I did a little bit of my own research, uh, people certainly refer to Venus, Mars, and other planets as being exemplary of single biome. And what they really mean is sort of uniform. Uh, Venus is coated in a thick, toxic atmosphere, uh, and it's coated in that all throughout. You know, Mars Mm -hmm. is a very thin atmosphere, uh, cold, we'd probably say desert, uh, and it's like that all throughout. But even that is not strictly true. And the people, and I know I'm probably getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but the people that criticize this idea of single biome point out that neither of these planets or any planet is uniform in terms of the amount of light it receives, in terms of the height of the landscape, the geography of it, um, if it has any atmosphere at all, it has weather conditions. You know, whether those be the toxic weather conditions of Venus or uh, you know, sort of the, the sandstorms and such of Mars. So those are all variations that have to exist, um, and I think that that's important to recognize. Uh, you know, up to a point, at least in terms of you know, asking about the real life. Planets. But at the same time, we sort of can also categorize, you know, loosely, Mars is a desert planet. Loosely, Venus is this, you know, hot, uh, thick atmosphere type planet. So I I don't want to be wishy washy. Uh, uh, I'm going to wear my colors on my sleeve and tell you right away that I think the idea and uh, usage of single biome planets is both valuable and a good thing in, in fiction. But uh, to be perfectly technical, they pro- they don't exist. They don't exist uh, as far as we know, because planets are going to have variation in temperature uh, and geography. I mean, even those two alone. And, and, and then if you add in atmosphere, then they have variation of weather as well.
1: Mm-hmm. It seems to be more just an easier way for us to Classify and market, so that we can very quickly say, like some of the planets that we're discovering right now. There's a planet made entirely of diamonds, or something—the diamond planet. There's a planet that's raining. I forgot what it was, but like that—that's how they define it to the general public. So we think, oh yeah, that one planet has that one specific attribute, and therefore Mm -hmm. it must be the entire surface is that way.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that you said a key phrase there. That's how it's presented to the public. So Mm -hmm. part of it is, you know, we're probably consuming pop culture media, or if not even pop culture, like, you know, we're probably not reading the uh, astro-scientists published papers (laughs) (laughs) on on what they're talking about. And I think that, like, to put it in a succinct manner, the moon is a fairly uniform planet or or, uh, not planet, but, you know, a moon in my mind and in most people's minds. And in my experience, if I could even walk around on the moon, it would be a fairly uniform experience for me. Mm
1: -hmm. However,
0: you take a geologist up there and let them dig around. And I think they're going to tell you, oh no, it's so diverse. There's so many layers to it. And it really, you know, you can read all these layers and learn about the history of it. And it's so dynamic and interesting. Right. So I think that I want to talk about perspective a lot today, I guess. And I think that perspective is super important when talking about single biome planets.
1: Interesting. Okay. So let's go into the fictional examples. And the one I wanted to bring up and get your perspective on is the water planet in Interstellar where they land to, to summarize it for the listeners. They land on, they're trying to find their buddy. Who's stranded on some planet and they've got several planets to choose from. And they go to this particular planet. And when they land, it's entirely covered by water. And there are these, uh, like, huge waves that travel the entire, um, I don't know what you call it, s- surface area of the planet. And they, you know, that's the t- ticking time bomb of when the next wave is going to come through. And so they, decide that that's not the right planet there's it's kind of chaotic and they finally leave when they get back years have passed like every second um every second on there was like i don't remember just a significant time period passed between being on the surface and going back up what would that be is that a single biome planet where you just have one water just washing around the the planet and is that could that happen
0: (laughs) could it happen i think there's widespread agreement that it could Um, okay Earth itself, I mean, you don't even have to add that much water, relatively speaking, to flood all of the Earth, to make it so that there is no ground sticking out above the water level. Uh, so I think that there's general agreement in the scientific community that an all water, or at least a water coated planet, is very reasonable. Um, I think that in the general sense, yes, we would say it's a single biome planet. Again, to be a little bit wishy washy, There would certainly be different biomes uh, to someone who was a biologist, for example. There would be the shallow ocean uh, where, you know, creatures who needed more warmth or needed that sunlight or needed to breathe the air uh, would be found. There would be the deeper ocean biome, and perhaps there would be hydrothermal vent uh, biome. To speak of just a few, if assuming there's not even, you know, bird life, you know, life above the surface of the water. So, yeah. you know, it's that idea of perspective of if you're an outsider or a person who's not, uh, educated in such a way to perceive all those different biomes, then yeah, water planet, one biome, it's a water planet. That's, that's literally the, <laughs> what we just said. Right. Yeah. But if you got into the details of it, you know, even if earth was fully covered in water, there's no way people would say it's a single biome.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, well, so then trying to pick apart what little information we know about this, but maybe there's way more information about this than I'm aware of, and all the experts can certainly tell us on social media. But the idea that you have this constant wave moving around the planet, and when they land, they're able to just shuffle around. It's not deep. So that makes me wonder if the wave has worn down the crust or like the, the surface so that like at no point did they fall in a off, a off a underwater cliff. Um, and the wave, if the wave is so consistent. Does that mean that it's very smooth? Like would different sorts of geological makeup or, you know, surface differences change the way the water is moving around the planet? Would it create a lot more torrential storms? You know, I, I don't know where I'm going with that, but that's where I'm thinking as far as what can we get out of what we think this planet's made out of.
0: Right. Well, you're certainly not asking an expert um, in this particular <laughs> area. So we're both going to be hypothesizing a lot, but uh, you know, that's what we're here for maybe.
1: We're writers. <laughs> that's what writers do.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think that, I don't know how much uh, that water would wear down the surface or what sort of time scale. I mean, if you've got any sort of active tectonics, there's occasionally going to be Volcanic activity. Okay. Uh, and I don't know how, I mean, on a geological time scale, maybe, you know, the, the movement of that water would wear it down relatively quickly. But, you know, even right there, uh, uniformity is like time is an aspect of uniformity. How long does it take that wave to circumnavigate the planet? Um, there's going to be differences of whether you're on, you know, the peak or the trough of the wave itself. So, you know the single biome idea like yeah it's still a water planet but that's sort of one of the things that always makes these planets interesting is that it's never just like you know the entire planet is made up of gray paste that's completely uniform <laughs> yeah or if it was even that would be interesting i guess in and of itself in its lack of of any uh differentiation
1: gotcha okay so then what are what are some of your examples
0: Oh, I'm so glad you asked, because uh, (laughs) as I started really thinking about it, I came up with or or found, you know, more and more uh, different single biome planets. So there's the everything is trying to kill you planet, which, uh, you know, isn't really a biome so much as just like, you know, they're constantly running into hostile life. Mm -hmm. There's a garbage planet where, you know, probably some corporation or whatever is just dumping all their garbage. Uh, the, the example that comes to mind, I don't know how well known this movie is, but there's an old Kurt Russell movie called Soldier. It's a sci-fi movie on a garbage planet. Um, one of the, my favorite things I discovered that I laughed at was uh, the Vancouver planet or the Southern California planet um, because it's cheap to film there. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Where
1: it's all, and- everything is like mildly like nice weather is uh, that why
0: so so having never really been to either of those places my understanding is that the vancouver planet is sort of a uh yes a moderately temperate uh forested planet and then the southern california i, I think it's desert isn't it I, i'm not 100 sure desert
1: now. with like beach and coastal some some vineyards i used to live in southern california okay a very sure short part of so type. also also
0: a fairly pleasant climate
1: very but, pleasant uh, yeah
0: but mostly desert yeah and then, and then there's some of the truly bizarre planets. So uh, there was a 90s Nickelodeon cartoon, Invader Zim. Uh, and Invader Zim introduces the parking structure planet, which the entire planet is covered in parking structures. And then also um, the, well, perhaps my favorite, the fast food planet of Food uh, which is entirely covered in fast food establishments.
1: Oh my god. So at this point we're just using planets as destination like the whole universe is ours to travel. Um just milestones, planet to planet to planet.
0: Yeah, and like that's literally what Star Wars does. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm currently in the middle of uh the first season of Andor and uh I'm loving it you know people recommended it to me and I finally watched it and like, it's fantastic but I have to and it's very serious but I have to giggle a little bit every time you know my brain just just shifts and I, I miss the gear I'm trying to shift into when somebody shows up on some planet and the scene before they were on some other planet like planets have always been and continue to be in the star wars universe treated as certainly different towns Mm -hmm. you know if not even closer together as like maybe even just like the lake on one side of town and you know the forest on the other side of town uh (laughs) the star wars universe i I joke you know fits in 30 square acres
1: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Well, that, that, that raises a good point because each destination they go to has a very unique or specific kind of setting that of course mirrors what we would see here on earth. But I would think for a planet to have, well, that just makes me think that instead of westward, westward expansion on, on one continent, we did westward expansion across all the planets. Because I would Mm -hmm. think if a society were to evolve on a planet, you would have a lot of diversity or hierarchies or social structures that are very, you know, unique or specific to that planet rather than just like, oh, these people settled here kind of feeling because it looks and feels very familiar to maybe other planets.
0: Right. I think that, you know, that familiarity versus, you know, what they want is distinctiveness. They want Mm -hmm. it to be distinctive so you can remember, I mean, going back to Andor in particular, Holy cow, the show is sprawling. It takes place with many different characters in many different locations. But yeah at least I find myself not losing track because everyone's dress and mannerism and location, of course, so distinctive. Uh, you can tell at a glance, every scene, where it takes place, who you're about to see, you know involved in the scene.
1: Hmm. Okay. So would you say that distinction is about the same as how you would distinctly characterize different cultures and landmarks on earth?
0: Uh, Yeah, I would. I mean, you know, we always want to be careful, particularly in the real world, Mm -hmm. to not be harmful with our stereotyping. And what I mean by that, I mean, stereotyping has a very negative connotation, but it's just reality that when we come across new information about a person, place, or thing, we immediately need some way of categorizing it based on what we're familiar with. So we're gonna stereotype it. Now, the important thing is simply to recognize that we're doing that and not just continue to forever judge it based on the first impression, but to mm-hmm. you know develop one's understanding as you learn more about a thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, like not immediately categorize something with otherness as uh, which would perpetuate, I think, the idea that just because they're different means they're they're wrong or that they're, you know, something to fear before you've at least had a chance to like get to understand that other society or that other. I don't even know what what you would call. I haven't seen Andor. I've seen Mandalorian, (laughs) but but I guess that other civilization on that other planet.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. As long as you're not immediately bringing negative judgment along with the stereotype, and as long as it's not being perpetuated, you know, it's just reality that we classify things when mm-hmm. we're first encountering them.
1: It's, it's it's such an important point because the my manuscript with my agent right now, it has a lot of alien stuff. Like, I had a lot of fun with that and I originally wrote my character to be kind of like startled because this is stuff she's never seen before. But my agent made a point. She had, she wrote notes all throughout the manuscript and she's like, um, this, she's like, this could be misinterpreted as like otherness. So what if she were to look at these creatures or characters or, you know, other different species with awe, with curiosity Hmm. and, um, That didn't affect, like, her change suggestion It doesn't affect the book at all. If anything, it, like, strengthened it. But I thought that was, like, a really interesting switch on, like, what you might think might, like, for example, if I walked into a, uh, onto a planet that was only uh, occupied by human-sized spiders, I would be pretty terrified because I'm terrified of tiny-sized spiders. But the idea of, like, breaking that internal like immediate like gut punch reaction and changing it to a positive of like instead of being terrified actually maybe you're intrigued um and especially given like the lightheartedness tone of the book I thought that was a really good choice but it got me thinking like of like how we internal like our internal biases are and how we can like examine those things
0: absolutely you know you and I are speculative fiction writers and perspective is such an important aspect of speculative fiction and expanding people's perspective and challenging people's perspective. Um, And I have to make a note of the thing I thought of when you use that specific example of the spiders is a book by uh, Werner Vinge, I believe I'm pronouncing that name correctly, V-I-N-G-E, called uh, A Deepness in the Sky. And the alien race is, giant spider-like creatures and um i don't want to spoil it but uh, he he throws in this perspective shift almost as an afterthought in in terms of the plot of the story and but it's really a profound uh, look at how our perception perceptions are shaped um, both by uh, our experience and our expectations
1: Mhm. Yeah, it's an interesting balance. It's a, it's like a push pull because then we're also dealing with horror writing where mm-hmm. they lean into the fear of the unknown or the fear of the different and in some cases the fear of the familiar, but being be, we humans are constantly being inundated with like con um contrasting contrasting perspectives on the same thing where that giant spiders from a different planet, that's terrifying because it's now, there's plenty of horror movies that are based off of spiders, right? Versus no, the spider is actually kind. We shouldn't be making these snap judgments because you associate it with something else. And we get that, we get all these different, um, signals and, you know, balancing all those things. It requires like, I, I guess a lot of vigilance on our part to be responsible and while also understanding some of like why we feel the way that we feel because of what we're exposed to
0: yeah i agree that was well said
1: all right any other examples
0: um no i think i mean so we have uh what what have we gone through so far so we've gone Mm -hmm. through desert planet Mm
1: -hmm.
0: uh, ice planet water planet um city planet
1: should we talk so, about uh, city, pl-
0: city Planets? Yeah, City Planets, Coruscant. You
1: said you um, wouldn't want to live there, right?
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want to live there. That that seems miserable. Um, all that bustle and noise and uh, uh, in- inescapable noise, I, I uh-huh. think is, is the worst part of that. Um, and then, of course, you know, sort of your fringe, goofier ones, uh, garbage planet, food court planet. Uh, you know, you can you can almost literally just come up with a word, and then you have that planet, you know, in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a planet where um, the, the dominant life form is uh, free roam sofas. And the sofas are, are of course, uh, hunted and killed and stuffed and then, you know, sold to people to sit on in their living rooms. So, you know, there's a, a ridiculous number of different, you know, silly planets we could come up with. But I think I think that about about covers it. Oh, you know, one more uh, realistic planet that I do want to mention, just to make sure I don't forget it, because I think it's so interesting, is a tidally locked planet. Now, a tidally mm. locked planet could have different different surface, could be water, could be uh, um, terrestrial, or, or whatever. But to uh, explain what this means... So one good example is that our moon is tidally locked to the earth, which means the same side of the moon always faces the earth, but a more interesting tidally locked planet might always keep the same side facing its sun. And what's cool about that is for one thing, you'd never have a sunrise or a sunset. And then furthermore, since one side is always facing the sun and always one side is always facing away, all of the heat is concentrated on the one side and the other side would be very, very cold. And a really interesting idea I came across was, I didn't invent this, was the idea that such a planet, if it had life, might have plants where the leaves of different plants, not of the same plant, sort of have a rainbow spectrum where they go from the And I don't know which, you know, if they would be sort of on the red end of the spectrum or the blue end of the spectrum, but one end would be on the sort of hotter side, closer to the sun, absorbing those wavelengths of light. And as you moved around the edge of the planet, in ter- the edge that was, you know, facing the star, mm-hmm. you would have the plants be adapted to absorb dif- the different spectrums of light that were striking the surface at those points. Uh, they'd have different colored leaves, and you'd get maybe like a, a spectrum or like a rainbow effect to your foliage, and that was Ooh. just a beautiful image that stuck in my brain, and so I had to mention it.
1: That's interesting. So um, I'm gonna the Terminator, the point where the the what the day meets the night. Yes, um, that would be really interesting. So in 2312, I'm gonna quote Kim Stanley Robinson again. Mercury is not exactly tidally locked. A lot of people make that assumption, but it's like. It's not. It's just not. I don't remember what the exact numbers are. And so his example of civilization doesn't follow that strict, you know, sun dark like permanent sun and permanent dark. But for a planet that is, I'd imagine that, and you're talking about plant life. So that means that it's not too close to the sun. It's far away enough for it to sustain life. That I'm imagining society kind of lives on that terminator, that point between day and night, because would it be too hot? to go onto the sun only surface and of course too cold to go on the night only, like nothing would have grown. Or maybe there's like, you know, uh, what do they call them? Extremist organisms that grow. Yes. That grow in like the worst conditions, you know, like maybe you'll see more of that on the sun side or the dark side.
0: Yeah. So um, it certainly depends on how much, you know, solar radiation the planet is receiving, you know, how mm. far away would it need to be for like human life versus other forms of life. But we can certainly imagine a planet that was at the right distance where humanity, you know, human life would would thrive on that Terminator line, that boundary between uh, light and dark. And we sort of think of that as a natural habitat for life, because life thrives on boundaries. There needs to be Um, you know, I'm going to use the words chaos and order. And I think there's some appropriateness to that, but you can sort of interpret chaos as heat and light and energy and order as safety and shelter, right? Mm -hmm. It can't be too cold, but it can't be too hot. We need this sort of intermediate place. And the Terminator line of a tidally locked planet facing its star is a perfect example of that sort of boundary layer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you mentioned extremophiles, and I think a lot of folks who are focusing on the more realistic end of single biome planets argue that they probably do exist in uh, real life, Um, and we can imagine, like Europa, you know, there's a possibility that the Jupiter moon, Europa, has life under its surface. Now, if that life exists, probably the most uh obvious place that we would look would be a geothermal vent uh, under the ocean water under the surface of Europa because it needs that we know life as we know it needs that that heat that energy that would come from uh you know the volcanic activity under the surface and it's a little bit hard to imagine that there would be any other biome than those geothermal vents on Europa so that would by definition, that would be a single biome planet. You know, it has that one biome. And another reason that I should have mentioned earlier why this topic probably resonates with a lot of people and resonated with me is we're at such an interesting time uh, with uh, like the James Webb Space Telescope, for example, in learning about planets that might support life beyond the Earth, Uh, you know, beyond the solar system, of course, as well. And this question of, OK, well, are single-biome planets realistic or are they not, is partly a question of what is life like in the rest of the universe? And mm-hmm. I think that's an inherently interesting question. And I think probably a lot of you know the other people who were prospective uh, podcast guests uh, also thought that. And going along with that question, just to extend it even a little bit further, is OK, suppose there is life under the surface of Europa at the hydrothermal vents. A follow-up question is, is it then a single biome planet? Or, given enough time, would that life spread out into the ocean under the surface? Or stated another way, how adaptable is life? Because we don't really know the answer to that question, I think. I mean, maybe a biologist can get on and tell me I'm wrong here, and I'd love to to have that happen and, and learn more. but. It's on Earth, basically every uh, part of the Earth has some sort of life that lives there. So life has adapted and spread across the entirety of the Earth. Now, does that mean that Earth is just uniquely suitable for life? Or does that mean that life is suitably adaptable, that it's going to spread wherever Mm. it gets a foothold? Interesting. That's kind of the answer to the single biome question in reality uh, is well, if we knew about other planets, are they diverse? Is the life there spreading to other biomes, or is there a limit to how much life can adapt? You know, uh, Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, life uh, finds a way, right? You know, does it find a way, or are there limitations to that? I think it's a fascinating question.
1: That makes me think of the theory that life came to earth from a meteor that crashed into earth. And that was like the start of it. Um, the idea that, you know, it, there was adaption from even early, that early point of time there. I mean, it is kind of remarkable because when you look at earth and the events of the solar system and how there was a lot of, there was a lot of volatility, as you were saying, you need that volatility, um, and how a, a large portion of our earth comes from different places, And it, and it all kind of works together to where we end up being today. It is an interesting concept to think, you know, are we, is is the idea that are we special or, or is this, are we not special? I guess ultimately is what it comes down to.
0: Yep. That's a great question. And, and definitely related to this question of single biome planets.
1: Well, my, my next question is what, when do you think we're going to get our own trash planet? Because I think that's probably the most realistic one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the near future
0: yeah yeah no that's that's dark but uh you know you're not wrong about that we're, we're quickly converting our uh mostly water categorized planet to a mostly trash categorized planet and that's pretty horrifying yes why we uh, should
1: just be throwing them into the sun at this point
0: <laughs> yeah right well you know if 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 flying a spaceship out of a gravity well was as easy as it was in star wars you know we <laughs> would certainly be throwing our trash into the sun already uh,
1: <laughs> uh you know priorities <laughs> Maybe yeah. we'll figure it out one day <laughs> okay yeah right so what advice do you have for writers like me I don't I didn't know anything about single bioplanets planets until we decided to prep for this episode um what would you what advice would you give that want to tackle this topic is it something that I should freely continue to use like Star Wars where it's just you know little towns along the great you know roadway of the universe or like yeah. what do you think
0: so I am in favor of single biome planets, uh, You know, assuming we've defined that term, uh, well, assuming everybody agrees with my definition of that term. <laughs> um, I watched a video unrelated to preparation for this recently by, or, or the, the series I believe is called Trope Talk on YouTube. It's by Overly Sarcastic Productions. And a quote from that stuck out with me. Having a stereotype is very different from being a stereotype. And I think it is great for authors to write a new place or even a new, you know they're mostly talking about cultures, but write a setting as a stereotype initially from the perspective of potentially an outsider or the reader who's only just encountering this thing, but don't make it an actual stereotype. So um, uh, Dune, Arrakis, uh, a mm. classic desert world, right? Is stereotyped as a desert world. But when you learn more and more about it, it's so richly peopled. And even the uh, ecology of it, I mean, I believe uh, Frank Herbert was trained as an ecologist, you know, and he put a lot of that into uh, the novel. You know, when you do learn more about, you know, I used the example of the moon earlier. When you learn more about the geology and history of the moon, you know, you can no longer see it as oh, well, you know, it's just a gray rock with craters. Mm-hmm. And you you perceive that, that interesting depth to it. But I recommend it. I think single biome planets are excellent. And I also want to say that George Lucas, for all his flaws as a writer or storyteller, um, did an amazing job with his single biome planets. And, uh, you know, look at... Just actually, no, I'm going to talk about his whole universe. So Hoth is this freezing, hostile planet. And we don't see that in A New Hope. And like even the title right there, you don't see this freezing, hostile planet in the movie with hope in the title. Mm -hmm. You see it in the movie with Empire Strikes Back in the title. The movie that is, you know, dark and hostile to the characters, the one in which the villains are winning um the the single biome of every imperial structure ever you know you see the halls of star destroyers and the death star and it's all these like polished surfaces you it looks like you could eat off of the floor mm-hmm. in those places and the only life that we really see i mean human life i'm not counting the only non-human life we really see aboard an imperial ship at least in the you know original trilogy is the like tentacle monster thing in the trash compactor. Mm. And there's such a powerful symbolism there of this is the future that an Imperial victory represents is that if you want to be something different, that doesn't live within the confines that the Imperials define, you can live amongst our trash. You can live on the fringe and be thrown away. And you know, Sad. i don't know how much That's i don't know so how much sad. george lucas like intended all of that directly but i absolutely believe that his subconscious mind was doing that from a place that was educated on symbolism i mean the dude knows his symbolism
1: mm-hmm. now i feel bad for the tentacled monster i'm like oh we were we see that as a scary thing but it's just it's just trying to do its thing. It's trying to exist, you know. It, it
0: totally is. There's a uh, there's a book set in the Star Wars universe. I believe it's called From a Different Point of View. It's a series of short stories all written by different authors. And there's one from the perspective of the trash compactor monster, and it's lovely.
1: Oh, I will have to check it out. Well, Neil, that thank you for giving me that new perspective. I I love hearing that. That's amazing. And thank you again for joining the podcast. Is there any final remarks that you'd like to make?
0: Um, no, I want to thank you again for inviting me along. Uh, I'm so glad that this uh, discussion turned out. and I, I hope to hear from other folks who uh, watch this, who listen to this, you know, on your social medias or wherever and see, you know people who were excited about this topic, you know, what are some ideas that we didn't necessarily talk about? uh and you know maybe you should have and maybe I don't know it could be a future conversation or we can hold that conversation on there um other, one other last thing oh before I forget um my science fiction novel Crew of Exiles I want to mention that I'm going to do a, a sale of the ebook on Amazon to coincide with the release of this podcast it'll be down to 99 cents so I strongly encourage you to go out and pick it up there's no particular single biome uh, planets, but uh, I do try to use those settings in symbolic ways and ways that uh, sort of get into your brain. There's some virtual reality settings that are, you know, like I have the the virtual reality of the pseudo medieval fantasy world and uh, the paradise world and sort of the war-torn world um, among others. And uh, yeah, so going back to sort of what I would recommend for authors, use, use settings to enhance your story use that symbolism use exactly as much depth and nuance to the setting as your story calls for and as the perspective of the character calls for do
1: you think that we could have a virtual reality planet
0: uh, absolutely <laughs> i feel like there's a lot of like cyberpunk that's kind of in that vein or or heading towards it
1: Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.